Good morning. Um, in Shane's absence this morning, uh, John Mark Bellington taught uh, Shane's Sunday school class, and we were in Second Peter, uh, chapter one. And there's that little section in there where uh, Peter makes this comment that his goal is to uh, stir up their um, to stir them up by way of reminder. Um, and so, you know, this morning, that's exactly what I'm going to try to do. I don't have anything new to tell you. Um, I don't have new truths or anything like that. Uh, and that's not what we're trying to do, right? I mean, we're, we, we come to be reminded and uh, encouraged and uh, blessed by old truths. And so um, turn me to Galatians chapter 3. Um, I'm going to pick up in verse 22. Uh, we talked about that one last week, but uh, I'm going to read it because uh, it goes with this one as well. Galatians 3.22 says this, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you were no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In previous weeks, I've mentioned that uh, Galatians um, is Paul's first and his angriest uh, letter, and I really love that. Uh, I love that it's that, that in Paul's first letter, um, he writes to contend for the gospel. Um, it, the gospel is of primary importance, and so a sharp contention for the gospel is a fitting first letter. I also love that it's, that it's his angriest letter. Uh, because of all the churches that he wrote to, which many of which were uh, riddled with uh, issues, um, none were completely abandoning the gospel to the to the degree to the degree that the Galatians were. And so, I think it's fitting that his angriest letter is one in which he is calling people who've abandoned the gospel, "Hey, snap out of it, come back, uh, embrace the truth." Um, In chapter 1, we learned that the church at Galatia was turning to this false gospel of the Judaizers who taught justification by faith plus works. It was faith plus their effort or their earning. 
And that stands in stark opposition to the gospel of Jesus, which is the good news that sinners are justified or saved, brought into right standing with God, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ. We're justified by God as a gift through faith, just through trusting Jesus and nothing more. We're not earning anything from the Lord. Toward the end of chapter 3, Paul asked the question, why then the law? And this was undoubtedly a question the Judaizers would have been asking, because the Judaizers, they were all about earning. They they, they, they were like, hey, we need some Jesus, but really at the end of the day, I'm getting in because I'm Jewish and I'm obeying the commands. Um, And so the Judaizers were very interested in this question, why then the law? If we're really just saved by grace, the Judaizers would say, are you telling me, God, uh, I, I don't get anything from the Lord because of all this work I've been doing my whole life? Are you serious, Paul? Like these Gentiles who don't even know God's word, they don't even know the law. They're just going to get in the same way I am, even though I've been busting my rear to keep all these commands. In verses 22 and 23, Paul answers the question, why did God give the law? He says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Here, Paul reveals the connection between the promise and the law. In the previous verses, Paul reminds the Galatians that God made unconditional promises to Abraham. And Abraham didn't do anything to earn these promises. He just believed them. So why the law? What did the law do? Well, it did two things. One, it imprisoned people under sin. It enclosed us. It, it kept us confined. Now, whether it's Toy Story 3 or the Shawshank Redemption, uh, I suspect most of us have seen some great escape from captivity movie or read some story about that. In the Shawshank, Andy spends 19 years digging this tunnel and he eventually escapes prison. In this heroic moment, Woody swoops into the Sunnyside daycare to try to rescue all the toys, right? Like we know of these escape stories, but there's no breaking free here. There is no escape from this prison. The law completely restrained us so that we could not escape. The law wasn't given to free us from sin. It was given to reveal that we're inescapably captive to sin. But that's not all the law does. The law also points us to our need for Jesus. In verse 24, Paul says the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now, what does he mean by the word guardian? I don't love the word guardian. I don't think it gives the clearest sense of what I think Paul is getting at. And neither does the word tutor, which is often, uh, which is like in the NASB, the New King James and some others. Uh, the Greek word here is pedagogos, which gives us the English word pedagogue. Um, according to Oxford, not the most reliable source at all times, but in this, in this case, they got it. A pedagogue is a teacher, especially a strict or pedantic one. Uh, one who's very, a teacher who's very strict and meticulous about the rules. And that definition pretty much nails the ancient, the ancient Greco-Roman use of the word. 
Now, now get this. Uh, in ancient Greece and Rome, I had no idea this existed, okay? Uh, I'm from Alabama. We don't learn a lot there. Uh, in ancient Greece and Rome, wealthy parents often had slaves nurse their infants for them. Um, and after the child stops nursing, the parents would have a nanny take care of him until he was about six years old. And at the age of six, they would bring in another slave called a pedagogue. And, uh, and this pedagogue would teach the boy what he should do, rebuke him for failing to do it, and deliver harsh punishment for those failures. And the law does that, doesn't it? It tells us what God requires. It exposes our failure to meet God's requirements. And it guarantees unbearable and inescapable punishment. And the goal of the law was to lead us to faith in Jesus. God designed the law to rescue us from the notion that we're doing pretty good on our own. He designed it to put an end to the excuses we love to make for our sin. On this note, uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. This is a, a lengthy quote, but I love it. I love the... Uh, Charles Spurgeon was uh, not only solid, as or like rock solid, he was also just really witty and funny. So he says this. Did you ever know a boy without an excuse? I never did. I think I never knew a girl either. We all make excuses readily enough. But those rough, surly pedagogues always answer the boy's idle apologies by giving the offender an extra stroke of the whip for daring to impose upon his guardian. That's what the law does with us. We say to it, we've not done exactly as we ought, but then think of poor human nature. The law says, this is what God commands, and if you do not obey, you will have to be cast away forever from his presence. A man will say, well, I know I got drunk, but that's merely gratifying an instinct of human nature. He does not recognize soft speeches about human nature when anyone does wrong to him, and he knows in his own soul there is no valid defense in such a plea when he does wrong to God. Many transgressors also argue, Spurgeon continues, but I've been better than others. You ever said that? But the law says, if you have not perfectly walked in all the ways of the Lord, your God, to do them, I have nothing to do with comparing you to others. When the law comes, it sweeps all excuses away and makes us see how... And Spurgeon's comment gets to the heart of Romans 3.19 and 20 when Paul said this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes just the knowledge of sin, not deliverance from it, just the knowledge of sin. See, in accord with human nature, the Judaizers wanted to feel they had a hand in their justification. So they twisted the scriptures to excuse their sin. They wanted to feel like God would accept them because of how much better they were than other people like the Gentiles. 
But, says Paul in Romans 3, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. It's not going to happen. And that reminder isn't just for first century legalists. It's for all legalists. And so if that's you, stop trying to convince yourself that God will accept you because you're a good person. You're not a good person. You've sinned and you are a sinner. And the law, our strict teacher and disciplinarian says to us, you're not good enough. You don't measure up. And listen, you're not even close. You have precisely zero ability to make God accept you or even tolerate you. You've earned God's wrath in hell and you will get it. That's what the law says. So in verses 22 and 23, we learn that the law imprisons us under sin so that we cannot escape. And we find in the first part of 24 that the law is our pedagogue, our strict teacher, who points out our sin and guarantees our judgment. And those accusations that the law makes about us are right, aren't they? I mean, as harsh and as painful as those words are, they sound familiar, don't they? Doesn't your conscience tell you the exact same thing? We're not good people. We deserve God's judgment. We will receive it. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. There's no earning that we can do to prevent it. That's the truth. And we all know it and we all feel it. It's the reality that we live in. So here's the question. What should we do with such crushing news? The last half of verse 24 tells us, be justified by faith. That's why Jesus came. He's who the law was pointing to. He's the one our pedagogue, our strict teacher was preparing us for. The law reveals our guilt and impending judgment to teach us not to trust in ourselves. The law was pointing to this truth. You cannot be justified by your works. But hear this. There is a way for you to be justified. Now, how about that? You talk about some good news. Goodness. There is a way, just one. For an unrighteous person to be declared righteous in God's court of law. And it's by faith alone. No works, no earning. It's by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's by trusting that Jesus accomplished for you everything God requires of you. You're trusting that in his life, he perfectly obeyed God in your place as your substitute. And you're trusting that in his death, he bore your sins and received your punishment in full. That is unreal. In the Greco-Roman world, a pedagogue's usefulness was temporary. When adulthood, the time for which the pedagogue had been preparing the boy, had arrived, the boy no longer needed his pedagogue. 
And so it is with the law. The law's usefulness was temporary. Its job was to prepare us and point us toward the need for justification by faith in Jesus. It was to say, hey, your works are never going to be good enough. There is no earning here. The only thing you'll earn by your works is hell. But there is the, uh, but sinners can be justified by faith. And so now that Jesus has come, we're no longer under the law. But why? Well, Paul tells us in verse 26, Paul says it's because in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. See, in the Greco-Roman world, children under the care of a pedagogue were more like slaves than sons. And just a few verses later in Galatians 4, 1 to 3, Paul makes this point. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So in practice, a child under a pedagogue was more like a slave than a son. But under the law, we aren't like slaves. We are slaves if we're under the law. Our father, apart from Christ, is Satan. Our father was Satan. Remember in John eight forty four, when Jesus said to a group of Jews, he said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Apart from Christ, that's all of us. By nature, Satan is our father. But in Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God as children. Through faith in Christ, we're no longer slaves. We're sons and daughters of God. Why? Because God is our Father. But notice with me in Romans uh, 4, 4 to 6. Sorry, not Romans. In Galatians 4, 4 to 6. Uh, this isn't just a father-son thing. All three persons of the Trinity are involved. We find in verse 4 that God sent forth his son. We find that Jesus redeemed those who were under the law. And as a result, we receive the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The father planned our justification. The son accomplished it. And the spirit seals it. The Holy Spirit who lives in us, who set up residence in us, the Spirit of Christ lives in you through faith in Jesus. He has set up residence. He dwells in us. That Spirit convinces us that we really are children of God. That's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He convinces us that God really is for us and not against us. That God really is our Father and He loves His children. But in Christ, not only do we get a new father, we also get a new family. So back up in Galatians 3.27, Paul says this, 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There are, of course, people who use this as a proof text that baptism saves people. But such a use of this text would necessarily undermine Paul's central argument to the people in Galatia that justification is by faith alone. So if Paul isn't saying that baptism saves, what is he saying? Verses 28 and 29 are the clue here. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul's getting to the fact that we're saved not into isolation, but into a community or a family of believers. And who's in that family? Remember, the church of Galatia was comprised of Jews and Gentiles. We learned that in chapter 2 through Paul's rebuke of Peter, who sat down to eat with a mixed group uh, of Jews and Gentiles. So in, in Galatia, you have both Jew and Gentile. And Paul says that this family that we're now part of contains as many of you, as many of you, Jews, Gentiles, who've been baptized into Christ. So Paul isn't saying that baptism saves us, and it doesn't, by the way. Paul mentions baptism because baptism is the public acknowledgement, proclamation, and celebration, not only of our union with Christ, but also of our union with each other in Christ. So after a person is saved... Baptism is the public symbol of his union with Christ and the church. So in verse 28, we're not surprised to find that the distinction that matters is not your ethnicity, social status, or sex. It's your faith in Christ. And despite what the world has always and certainly continues to deny, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free, there's no male or female. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, period. But we find implied in verse 29 that there is one distinction that really matters. And it's not your ethnicity, it's not your social status, it's not whether you're a man or a woman. It's this, are you a child of God and true offspring of Abraham through faith alone in Jesus? Or are you a child of Satan who's still enslaved to sin? If you're holding on to the delusion that God will accept you because you're a good person, or at least better than most, then please hear me this morning. Jesus is not impressed with you. He doesn't care if you do more good in the world than so-and-so. He really doesn't. He's impressed with perfection and nothing less. So abandon ship on your efforts to earn God's acceptance. That's a burden you can't carry, and it's a goal you cannot reach. 
And you know the incessant cries of the law and of your own conscience are true. You don't measure up. You're not good enough. You're under the judgment of God. And so don't run from those truths. We spend, I feel like people go to counseling sessions to try to like run from those feelings of like, oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I'm not this. I'm not that. Don't run from that. Own it. Embrace that. And let that lead you to Jesus. Confess to God your need for His Son. Trust that in Jesus' life, He perfectly obeyed God for you. You don't have to measure up. He measured up in your place. And trust that in His death, He was punished for your sin. Your judgment, the penalty for your sin, was put on Him. And it was paid in full. That's the Gospel which means good news. And I'm telling you, you will never hear better news than that. Now, I'm sure you've heard that the Mega Millions jackpot is currently like $1.05 billion. So somebody's going to hit a $1 billion jackpot, and they're going to get like 75 cents after taxes are taken out of that. But but somebody's going to hit a billion-dollar jackpot. But I'm telling you, it's nothing compared to the gospel. It's nothing. As big as $1 billion is, it is a finite number. It's finite. It has an end. And whoever wins that can't take it with them. But in Ephesians 2, 5-7, Paul tells us that God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Not earning And he raised us up with him. And listen to what he did. Tell me if you can get your mind around this. He seated us with him. With who? Christ. He seated us on the throne with Christ. What are we saying here? And why would he do that? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to you in Christ Jesus. It's immeasurable riches. Immeasurable. That's not finite. So you can have the billion dollars. I want immeasurable riches of grace. And they can be ours. We can have those through faith in Jesus. It is available to us through faith in Christ. If you have questions about the gospel or want to talk about the gospel or have believed the gospel and now need to be baptized to acknowledge, proclaim, and celebrate your adoption as a child of God, and your entrance into his family, I'll be here after this. I would love to talk. Or you can grab Jaron or one of our elders or whoever's sitting next to you in the pew. Um, And if you already trust that your justification, your right standing with God, is the gift of God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, 
then I pray that God has and will continue using this reminder to lead you to worship and enjoy our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I praise you uh, for your mercy to us in Jesus. Lord, your, your goodness is unsearchable. I have earned judgment. We have earned judgment. And because of Jesus, we're never going to get it. It's not coming to us. And you didn't just sweep it under the rug or blow it off. Lord, you, you sent your son into the world. And he became sin for us. He died. He was punished, beaten, and crucified for us. So that in him, we might become your righteousness. The unrighteous through Christ receive righteousness as a gift. And God, we praise you for that. Help us to be so thankful uh, for that. Um, Lord, I... um, I pray that we'll be thankful that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and has shed his own blood for our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship. We'll turn to page 122. Tell me the story of Jesus. Tell me the story of Jesus. 